Hello and welcome to the Bible and Me podcast brought to you by Precept UK. We are a charity based here in Salisbury focused mainly on Bible study resources and it's our mission to equip people to know God deeply and to live differently as a result. For more information, visit precept.org.uk. But firstly, I just want to start this off by saying a massive thank you to all of our listeners. We are so blessed now to be releasing Series 7 and we couldn't have got there without your incredible testimonies and reviews. If you aren't already, we would love it if you would consider subscribing so that you won't miss out on ordinary people with interesting stories about an extraordinary God. But without further ado, here's the podcast. Well, I am absolutely delighted to be welcoming the Reverend Dr. David Coffey to the podcast today. Um, On leaving school, David worked for Surrey County Council before attending theological training at Spurgeon's College in London. David was ordained as a Baptist minister in 1967 and pastored three local congregations over a period of 21 years. Since then, he's held a number of key roles within the Baptist Union of Churches, from Director of Evangelism to its General Secretary and also its President. He has held a number of important roles in a voluntary capacity, including President of the European Baptist Federation and also of the Baptist World Alliance. Uh, David loves watching cricket and football. I believe he's a Chelsea supporter. Uh, He loves reading and walking and also teaching God's word. He has been married to Janet for 54 years. Uh, Many congratulations for that. And they have a son um, and a daughter, Nikki and Phil, and also four grandchildren, which I'm very jealous, I have to say. so uh, welcome to the program, David. Thank you Thank so you, much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Now, I asked this uh, question to, to all those that uh, come on the podcast. Um, David, how did you become a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, firstly, and why do you follow him? Well, first of all, Nigel, thank you for your warm welcome. And um, I had the great advantage of being born into a Christian home. Um, my dad was a minister. And so I was a manse kid. And uh, so I really had no choice. It was Sunday school and youth group uh, from the cradle. Um, I never doubted that the Bible was true or that uh, Jesus died for my sins. The question for me, was it true for me personally? Could I commit myself to uh, all that the Bible said about Jesus? And so looking back, I was living on a borrowed faith. I could have taken an A-level in uh, what it is to be a Christian. And I think one day, and whether or not uh, my youth leader, I I owe so much to uh, my youth leader, Janet and I often thank God for Eric and Margaret. And I remember my youth leader saying, would I give a testimony at one of our sessions? So because I knew all the theory, I knew all the right things to say. And nobody said anything to me afterwards, like, you know, doubting. But the real thing that happened was inwardly, I knew I was a sham. I knew that I wasn't speaking from personal experience. And so I think quietly in the weeks that followed, I I said, many times I'd said a prayer inviting Christ into my life. But the time I meant this, this time I meant it. Uh, I I prayed the sinner's prayer. I, I pleaded that his death and resurrection was for me. And on the day of my baptism, I was baptized by immersion, Uh, On the 3rd of May, 1959, I felt it was a physical experience. I felt the Holy Spirit 
overshadowed my life as never before. And I look upon that period as being born again. Uh, and uh, now you say, why do I follow him? Because I believe I'm made in God's image. And because I'm made in God's image, I'm meant to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul and strength, because that's the first commandment. But sin has ruined that image. So until Jesus restores it, my faith in him to cleanse me, restore me, put me right with God, and then begin a reconstruction work, which is still going on by the power of his spirit. That, I believe, is the meaning of the universe. It's the meaning of my existence. Mm. So I follow Jesus because he alone gives me uh, my life meaning and purpose. He's the only true king. We're talking to each other on the eve of the United States elections. The outcome is uncertain. But, but kings, presidents, prime ministers, they come and go. Jesus Christ is the true, eternal, everlasting king. And his kingdom of righteousness one day will be planted on this new earth and new heaven. So the grain of the universe is in his direction. And I want to go with the grain. So that's why I am a believer. Wonderful. I, I just want to pick you up a little bit on the on the word <clears throat> sin and being a sinner. I mean, how would you what would you say to someone who who's living a life here in the UK? They're sort of they're going about their normal life and they've never really comprehended that they were a sinner. I mean, how would you how would you um, communicate to them? the concept of being a sinner and the need for that reconciliation with God to someone that really hasn't been brought up as you were brought up with that background. I think by not talking about sins, because we're great at talking about sins. And I think uh, the sin is living an independent life. And I was never made to live independently of God. So I think to repent to the maker that, um, uh, my biggest sin is I've lived independently of you and I've, uh, you know, they say the most popular song at funerals is Frank Sinatra's I did it my way. Yeah. And you have to change that song to I did it his way. I do it his way. Mm. Um, so that would be, you know, my, my definition of sin. And I cannot cure that bias of wanting to live my own life by myself. Right. Sin is a master and it, the, the power of sin in my life needs to be broken. Mm. And so it's when I come to Jesus asking for forgiveness of sin and sins, uh, asking him to cleanse, renew and put his spirit, his life comes to live within me. Mm. So it's not I that's living, but Christ who lives in me. Mm. And uh, that doesn't happen by my good works. It doesn't happen, you know, by mixing with other Christians, going to church, religiosity, all that. It's a relationship. A mate of mine who got baptized a few weeks ago, I met him at Alpha uh, and uh, we met in the dinner queue, discovered we both had the same books for Christmas presents and we both supported Chelsea. So it, was gonna, it started well. And um, apparently in his baptism testimony, he said, I said to him, it's not about religion. It's about a relationship. And uh, apparently that that set him thinking because he was a very religious person. Yeah. in his background and in his good life but he realized he had no relationship with his heavenly father mm. for this we were born mm. wonderful wonderful well thank you so much thank you so much for that now you left school and after five years working for surrey county council you went off to spurgeon's 
Theological College. Um, how did that happen? I mean, how did you go from working for Surrey County Council to going off to Theological College? What happened? Well, I was very happy. Um, I, I really felt it was going to be a career in local government. I was working for what was then county welfare. That's how ancient I am. It's now social services. Um, and uh, I was fully prepared for a training and, uh, as it were, a leadership development in that. But I discovered that the stuff I was doing in my local church, leading Bible studies, coffee bar evangelism, the early steps in lay preaching, my youth leader was a vet. And um, he obviously spotted potential in me. He was also a lay preacher. So he'd say, come on, he said, I'm, I'm preaching at Isha next Sunday. He said, I want you to come and do uh, an opening prayer or then an opening prayer and a Bible reading or a, a children's talk. And bit by bit, and after about six months, he said, right, next time he said, you're going to preach. And um, so I, I just, and I was also part of a crusader class and was a junior leader there. And uh, I, I went in 1959 to Keswick. Uh, my mum and dad had been going to Keswick for years. And I remember on the Wednesday, you know, my, my, my mind and my ears had been, um, you know, just full of Bible knowledge. I'd, I'd got the equivalent of, of spiritual indigestion. And I just thought, I've, I'm taking so much in, I need to take time out. And I stayed in, in my room at 42 Eskins Street. I've been back to that very place and i've got my bible open right now because i can remember opening it at isaiah 42 and i've marked uh, i put a little mark in my bible here a promise from god july 59 keswick i the lord have called you in righteousness i'm going to take hold of your hand i'm going to keep you i'm going to make you a light to the gentiles and um to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. And um, I can only say that God spoke to me through that passage. Mm. And uh, on the Friday, it's traditional at Keswick to have a commitment service for Christian service. And I stood up. But there was a setback after that wonderful moment at Keswick. Uh, I came back and talked to my minister and leaders and they said, well, as a church, we want to recommend you for training. And you have to go and be interviewed by, we were in the London area. And so I had to go and be interviewed. And the committee that interviewed me uh, turned me down. They said, we see no calling uh, at all. Uh, and uh, so I have to say everything ground to a halt. And I can remember just scouring the weekend papers uh, for jobs out of the country. I just felt so ashamed and humiliated. You know, I, I felt I'd got it wrong. But, you know, things calmed down. And uh, again, with good people around you, uh, we had um, some friends who were in an independent church very near to where we lived. We were living in the Kingston area, Kingston-on-Thames, and that was Chessington. And they said, look, we, we could do with a youth pastor. I said, I've got no training, but they said, well, no, we know your gifts. So for a year, I went and was the only full-time paid member of Chessington Evangelical Church. Mm -hmm. And um, during the time I was there, the chairman of the, the committee that had um, turned me down said, would you like to come and be interviewed again? And um, so I was, and they said yes, and the rest is history. The amusing thing is about uh, 25 years after this, the night I became the president of the Baptist Union, 
the guy who had chaired the committee that turned me down came up and said, I think we may have got it wrong. I said, no, you didn't get it wrong. <laughs> the, the day you made that decision was absolutely right for that day. Because if anything, it made me dig deep. Yeah. They were asking questions like, you know, um, your dad's a minister. Are you going into the ministry because your dad's a minister? Yeah. Now, if you know anything about the inside of a manse, if you've lived inside a manse, you'd have every reason not to become a minister unless you were called. <laughs> so uh, that's how it all happened. Fantastic. Uh, you remind me of the, a verse in Romans 11, 29, which the gifts and the calling of God are without are, repentance are irrevocable yes yeah, yes yeah, absolutely fantastic now on leaving spurgeons you started your time as a pastor first at whetstone baptist church that's in leicester by the way not north london whetstone okay. leicester yep in leicester and then in north cheam yes baptist, and lastly at upton vale baptist in torquay in devon yes so three three separate pastorates in three different areas of the country um so i've got a couple of questions related to your time as as a pastor um firstly what advice would you offer any new pastor uh, right out of training taking up his first pastorate well most young pastors will know because you're taught this in in theological college that that ministry is made up of character chemistry and competency Uh, character is who you are uh, as a disciple of jesus chemistry is really how you relate to people how they relate to you and competency is your skill set it's what you do and i would always say to a young pastor get the order right because when you come out of college you're really more full of competency you know, you believe you've got skills you've been taught over three or four years. So you can't wait to get going. But actually, I would always say get the order right. Because the character, who you are, lays the foundation for what you do. And long before the skills you exercise, after your character, who you are as a person in Christ, Christ in you, how you relate to people. And you know, if you ignore that, getting to know people. I've always said to pastors, don't give people the impression you're passing through. You know, you're you're not on some sort of trajectory of job advancement. So you begin small and end up large and give people the impression you're there for life. I don't know who once told me that, but it's always stuck with Janet and I. So when we landed in Whetstone in Leicester, as far as we were concerned, we were going to be there 40 or 50 years. Yeah. And if you do that, you put roots down. Now, the difficulty is, is when you come to leave, you've given so much love and you've received so much love. It's more painful when you do leave. But every church I've been in, in my mind before the Lord, I've said, until you say otherwise, this is my lifetime calling. Now, you mentioned character there. Um, I mean, how, how. Okay, so as a young pastor listening to this, how would you advise them to build shape their character because we're, we're you know we're born we, we we've got personality we in a sense we are who we are so so how would they how would they uh, build that element of those three c's that you mentioned there well the character uh, and this is you know i may repeat this more than more than once 
the most important title you carry is disciple of Jesus Christ. And if you're ordained and if you then are called reverend and, and you've had all the qualifications, you can, you can get lost in the professionalism. I do believe you need to bring professional standards uh, of competency. But behind it all, you know, the one title that I'm going to take to my grave, most of my titles now are behind me. <laughs> but I'm still a disciple and I hope I've always been a disciple. And if you're seeking to make disciples, that's the main calling of the pastor in a local church, it helps them to believe that their pastor is also developing as a disciple. Yeah. We're disciples together. Yeah. Now, you might happen to call me pastor or you know, minister or reverend or whatever. Yeah. Uh, if you come from a Catholic background, I have been known to be called father. <laughs> uh, but the most important thing is that inwardly, you know, that's what's written large. And uh, I can say this to you now, when I worked for the Baptist Union and I was privileged to hold, you know, high positions of leadership there, I used to say to ministers' gatherings, cut me open and you won't find Baptist Union of Great Britain written on my heart. You'll find disciple of Jesus Christ. Yeah. So that would be my best advice. That is your prime calling. Amen. It happens to be fulfilled as a pastor, a minister, leader in a local church, but you, like everybody else, you pastor who loves Jesus, you are a disciple. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, that is so good. I, I know having been, you know, in the military for many years, uh, you know, we can tend to wear our military rank, as, yep. and I'm sure you've come across that. Um, and actually, I was, I was, I don't know whether convicted is the right word, a little bit when I left, um, and... Uh, I'm a member of a, of, a, of a quite prestigious tennis club in London and they wanted to know how I wanted to be referred to, whether by my rank or just my name. And I, I sort of struggled a bit and I thought, no, I'm going to drop my rank and I'm just going to be, you know, Nigel. Uh, Nigel was, that's it. Um, and I think uh, what you said that is so important. You know, how often do we as Christians, when we get into a conversation, somebody say, oh, what, you know, what do you do? And uh, how often do we respond? Well, actually, I'm a disciple of Jesus, for, first and foremost. That is my, that's who I am. Yes. Um, so I think there is a realism, though, that, yes, you know, there are occasions I, I had to do a lot of representation um, nationally and internationally. And very often your title opened doors. Yeah. Yeah. I think the important thing is it's a bit like people saying, you know, whatever they say or write about you um, don't inhale. You know, you, you don't you don't inhale <laughs> the titles to such an extent that it inflates you. Um, so yeah. I, I would say if at any point in life I've been given privileges of title, I want to use those for the glory of yeah. God. Yeah, no, amen. amen. If it's going to open a door and get me a conversation with a person in high office, I'm prepared to do that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I know that preaching God's word is very important to you. Why is that? And, and again, what advice would you offer um, pastors, those leading congregations in, in regard to this? Well, the Bible is important because it's God's word to God's people. And my task is to just be a faithful messenger of that word. And it's important because the word does things I can't do. I can't open the eyes of blind people who don't see in Jesus all that he is. Um, it's food for hungry people. It's comfort for sad people. It's 
Do you know, when I began my ministry, I had done four years of training and I could answer all sorts of historical, theological, technical questions. I think I was surprised, genuinely surprised as a young pastor. The actual feeling has gone long ago, but in those early months, I was amazed at the power and influence of the word. And I would look back and especially, you know, because you don't always get feedback on the Sunday. It's, it's over a period of time that you see changes taking place in people's lives. And I thought, that isn't me. This isn't the force of personality. It isn't the way I put words together. It's the plain preaching of God's word, because people would tell you that. Uh, I, was, I was talking to um, somebody um, yesterday. It was a funeral, actually, two days ago. Uh, of a man, uh, a German bricklayer, married to an English woman. She died many years ago, and I had baptized him. And uh, we're back living in Torquay, where I pastored in the 80s. And I remember his wife, who came to church first, coming with another friend. They were both in a drama group. At the end of the service, I introduced myself, and they said, Who gave you the script of our lives? That passage you were reading this evening. It was from the Sermon on the Mount. They said it was like looking into a mirror. Now, that isn't you. It's, it, and that's why I'm such a powerful believer. My advice, therefore, to any pastor is to make a priority of time to prepare God's word. Um, it's amazing how in a busy week and all the demands, the one thing that often is the casualty mm. is the preparing of the word. And I would say, carve out time, be disciplined. Preparing sermons is hard work. Don't leave it. Because sometimes, you know, you've had three funerals and four hospital visits and a family crisis, you do end up sometimes late Saturday night, early Sunday morning. But I say when I mentor pastors, if that becomes the habit, mm. there's something wrong. Mm. You have to so discipline yourself that you, a bit like, you know, a man or a woman with a deep freeze, you prepare stuff yeah. in advance. So if you are caught out because of emergencies, I don't know whether you know the name uh, Roy Hessian. Roy Hessian, his most famous book is The Calvary Road. And uh, in his retirement years, he ended up in our congregation, which was a bit daunting because he was a great Bible teacher. But I remember him saying to me these things, David, preaching's not a lecture. The difference between a lecture and a sermon is at the end of a lecture, you just say, well, see you next week. <laughs> but a preacher, and this is what he said, he said, always ask in a, in a sermon, where's the good news and where's the net? Well, I understood the good news bit. And I said to him, what do you mean by the net? He said, your task is to ensnare people in the word so they don't get away. Absolutely right. So whether it's somebody who's never heard of Jesus before, you want to capture them for the gospel. And if it's an old crusty believer who needs to sort of know more of Jesus in his life, where's the net? So uh, those would be the things. And I think the other thing advice I'd give, always remember the Holy Spirit goes on speaking after the sermon is over. I think in your early days as a pastor, you want immediate feedback. It doesn't work like that. You have to dare to believe like a good farmer, you've scattered seed. Give it time. There will be a harvest. Yeah, wonderful. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll ask you later on in the interview about um, how you prepare to preach, because I'm sure that would be interesting to folks to listen to. Now, what, in your view, needs to be in place for a healthy church and for its members to grow spiritually? 
Well, this is a very personal view. I, I've always found the uh, teaching of Acts chapter two um, a wonderful model. Now it has to be lived out in every generation, but the early church devoted itself to the apostles teaching, to fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. And it goes on in other parts of Acts two and three and four to say how they generously shared their life and their goods and their testimony. And uh, the Lord added daily to the church such as were being saved. So worship, discipleship, fellowship and mission. I think looking up to God in worship and prayer. Um, God brings people, groups of people together for a season. Uh, the church I'm in at the moment, it's for us to say, Lord, why have you brought this bunch of people with their gifts together at this moment of time? And it's only in worship and prayer listening to God what do you want to do here Lord what well, you know if Jesus said I can only do what I see father doing we should be the same and then I need to be recognized that I I'm a work in progress every one of us is a work in progress and and then the fellowship of believers I would say you've mentioned the churches where I ministered what we need to acknowledge is every one of those churches and every team I've worked in have ministered to me They've shaped me. They've confronted me. They've, they've challenged me. They've encouraged me. All of us are meant to be shaped within the fellowship of believers. That happened with the bunch that Jesus chose. You can see them, you know, he sharpened them and they sharpened one another. And then, of course, out into community. We need to have lots of eyes and ears out in the community. So those four things of worship, discipleship fellowship and mission those for me are the foundation stones for a healthy church oh, wonderful thank you so much now i understand that the lord guided you in a remarkable way through a verse in uh, paul's letter to the corinthians uh, which had a dramatic effect on your ministry what what happened well, it was in january 1980 and um we had been at North Stream eight years, very happy years, very settled, lots of, you know, things to do. And out of the blue, um, there came an invitation to another ministry position. And uh, we said we needed time to ponder. They said, well, we'll give you two weeks. And we said, right, we will, you know, seek the Lord and, and uh, see what his will was. Um, during those two weeks, a brand new Christian in our church asked to see me and uh, she came to see me. Janet was uh, there and um, yeah. she was married to an unbeliever. And it was obvious that her faith, her becoming a Christian, had, uh, had really exacerbated tensions that were already in the marriage. And she said to me, oh, my mum went into Chichester Cathedral and lit a candle for me. And when she went and sat in the pew, the Bible was opened at 1 Corinthians 7. And she said there was a verse in that chapter that was relevant for me, and I've forgotten which verse it is. So I opened 1 Corinthians 7, looking for the verse for this dear lady to do with her marriage. And on my way to finding her verse, my eye lighted on verse 17 in 1 Corinthians 7, which said in the version I had then, that every person stay in the place where God has appointed them to be. Now, I couldn't say anything to her. I had to find her verse, which I did find. Uh, but when I came out, I said to Janet, look at this, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17. 
And it wasn't just that verse, but it was the verse in addition to all the other things that made us say no. That was January. And in the May, I received another invitation, not that one, a separate one, from Upton Vale Torquay. And that was God's will for me. Um, so um, I've had interesting experiences of scriptures being given. When I was in Leicester and I had an invitation to go to North Cheam, I, I, I just kept on putting off, putting off, putting off and kept on asking for signs. So one day I came across a scripture that says um, uh, no further sign will be given to this wicked and adulterous generation. <laughs> yes. I could have done without the wicked and adulterous. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant, brilliant. Now, for the last 30 years or so, um, you have held a number of different but uh, very important key roles uh, within the Baptist Union of Great Britain uh, and also internationally. Uh, and you've held leadership, therefore, uh, with a high level of responsibility. And again, I've got some questions I want to ask you about this, which I think may be of interest to folks listening. Um, what lessons in leadership have you learnt from holding these key positions? Whenever I'm asked to um, speak on leadership to ministers and I, I always begin, I, I have 10 commandments for leadership. I'm not going to give all of them to you this morning, but I give you number one and I'll give you one or two others. Number one for me is make Jesus your mentor. Uh, my grandma, when I was growing up, I can remember her saying, always ask David, what would Jesus do? Which I thought was pretty tame when I was a teenager. When I became a Christian leader, I recognized that was the most in question, important question you could ask. What would Jesus do? And, and so I, I've made it um, my mission in life, in my own life as a leader, and to impress upon other leaders. If Jesus, when he was here, in prayer said, I can only do what I see Father doing, I can only speak the words he gives me. That surely is the place where we begin. And uh, this isn't a talk on making Jesus your mentor, but believe me, the more you dig into the Gospels, you just run out of verses where you can say, yep, that's, that's what I need to do. And I think Romans 8.29 has been a shaping verse for me. We all know Romans 8.28. But Romans 8.29 goes on to say how we're predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Mm. So that's, that's his lifetime's work in me by his spirit. And uh, I believe that part of the being conformed to the image of his son is for me to be a lifetime disciple and make Jesus my mentor. I think another thing along those lines is to be strong in self-awareness. It partly comes when you meditate on what kind of person God has made you and wants you to be. But to know your strengths and weaknesses and closely connected to that is teamwork. You must be in a team. There's only one Lone Ranger and he's not in the Bible. He's in the cowboy films. You know, Lone Rangers really don't really do anything significant. You must be in a team. So other things I could add to that, but I think those are the, you know, the positions. And I think the other one I would say is invest in others, especially younger leaders. Brilliant. Okay. Take time out to invest in other leaders. And I think another one would be don't let the organization squeeze you into its mold. Every organization, every church I've worked with at some point 
first inwardly, but then outwardly, I've had to say, I will serve you. I will be your servant, but you can never be my master. Mm. And sometimes when a church or a Christian organization pays the salary, provides the house, Mm. you can end up feeling owned by the organization and you must be free. Mm. Yeah, wonderful. You 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 must never be mastered by an organization or a system. Mm, yeah. it's, it's just and and i think godly people hear that mm, yeah, yeah. yeah yeah wonderful wonderful now uh, what are some of the things you saw god doing during your time um as general secretary and president of the baptist union of great britain i think one of the there are downsides to being a tramp preacher which i was for a number of years uh where you're, you're there one sunday but not the next that's the downside the weariness of travel but the inspiration of actually seeing in the local situation some of the most inspiring creative missionary opportunities um, faithful things seeing people do a lot with a little uh, whether it be their buildings or their money or the gifts they've got and i i always came back on a sunday evening just not always i have to be honest there were times when it was hard but I would say if I look back over 12 months, I would, I would be away three weekends, but I'd have one weekend off with the family. And often Jan would travel with me on those weekends. Many, many times we would travel back and say, wow, isn't that great? Absolutely great. I, in 1986, I wrote a book called Build That Bridge because I was concerned that unity of God's people is very important in Scripture. Uh, and yet, very often, the landscape is littered with broken relationships and divided churches. I have to be honest with you, Nigel, a high percentage of that is not over doctrine, it's over personality, tribal conflicts. So I think, I hope that I tried to encourage and still do. I, I'm part of a group that tries to foster um, relationships between people who would not naturally agree with one another. Mm. So much of our differences are of secondary importance. Mm. When you boil down to what is primary truth, I think most Christians would say, yes, we can, we can stand you know, on that. Yeah. So I, I think I, those were the things. One would be just wonderful, inspirational things happening at the local. Uh, but the other is the way in which we sometimes fail to address the broken relationships that yeah. happen in divided churches. Yeah. Now, during your time holding these positions, uh, you visited uh, something like 80 countries uh, on six continents. Um, what, what did you learn about the Lord from your <clears throat> travels and meeting with his people? Well, <laughs> number one, when Jesus said, I will build my church, he did. I think it's phenomenal pause to think to yourself he began with 12 which then became 120 and then 3000 and and here we are 2000 years later 2.3 billion a third of the world's population Uh, i just think that's marvelous Uh, and um, yes there are peaks and troughs places where the church is growing rapidly for all that's happening in china some very troubling things If the church in China, both the registered and the unregistered, if they go on growing 
at the rate that they are, they will strip every other country in terms of its Christian population. Pray God will protect the flock of God in China. Mm. So I, I learned really that when Jesus said, I will build my church, he did. <laughs> I think the second thing, and you've traveled, you know this, how culture uh, can, can affect and impact local expressions of faith. So sometimes attitudes to women in leadership is not so much to do with how people are reading the Bible, but the place of women in the culture, mm. the place of young people in leadership. By young, I mean anybody under 40, because age is venerated and because you must never ask the leader in some cultures to step down. They go until they choose to go or until God calls them home. The opportunities for gifted, vibrant, dynamic leadership is held back because of this veneration for age. Mm. Influence of leadership by the political culture. I've done a lot of traveling in the former Soviet bloc mm -hmm. and very interesting to see how the, <clears throat> the dictatorship, not in all places, but in many places, the, the, the top-down leadership structures politically mm. have, have entered the church. I think another thing that I've learned, and it concerns me, I'm a free churchman. I believe church and state should be separate. Um, I think it's worrying in some cultures when people are not able to see that state and church have grown too closely. It would be true for some evangelicals, in America, putting a faith in a political structure. It's certainly true for some Christians in Orthodox Russia. And I believe that true prophets have always stood outside of the culture. You can be a patriot, but that doesn't mean to say you are, you are blind to the weaknesses of a political system. And I, I, I think I, I, that's something you've asked me what I've observed. And uh, that's what I have observed. One of the privileges I had was, um, let me tell you a story by Billy Graham and you'll see where I'm going. I remember reading Billy early on in his ministry was in an Arab country. And the very few Christians that were there had managed to get an audience with one of the Arab leaders. And it was in a magnificent location, you know, golden floors and palaces. And Billy went in very early on in his ministry and uh, talked about this and that, came home, went back to his hotel room, got down on his knees and asked the Lord's forgiveness that he had not fulfilled uh, about speaking truth to those in power. Hmm. He asked God's forgiveness. Early the following morning, before he flew out, there was a phone call from the palace to say the Arab leader would like to see you again. And Billy went back and this time he didn't miss his chance. When I became president of the Baptist World Alliance, I did that for five years. I remembered that story. And there were opportunities. I remember one occasion visiting the Middle East. And in a matter of a week, I went between Lebanon, Jordan and Israel. Each occasion, the Christians locally had managed to get me an audience with either the president or the king in Jordan. It was the king of Jordan. And in each of those occasions, I took the opportunity to bear witness to faith. I listened, I encouraged, I said how Christians in this country were praying. Where it was appropriate, I present somebody with a Bible. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
so it was very important to uh, you know you asked me what did I learn about my travels I was president for five years I wanted those five years to count for the king and his kingdom yeah yeah wow fantastic fantastic insights there thank you thank you so much um yeah just uh interesting your point about political influence um how that can infiltrate churches and i think i've seen that in a little bit of the travels that i've done so interesting uh and actually we may be in an organization but actually we're serving we're serving the lord not the organization it may be through that organization but what actually who, who is our boss our boss is jesus actually absolutely and so and so rem- being reminded of that is so helpful yeah i think coming back you mentioned about i think timothy in in the paul session of timothy we should pray for those in authority yes yes whatever that authority is i have no doubt about that yeah. and good christians whoever gets elected in the united states yeah by the time this podcast goes out we will know yeah. but at this moment we don't know whoever's elected deserves the prayers of christians i think it's when we are uncritical of those who are in leadership no human leader is beyond criticism they are to be called to account and if we don't do that then we have missed the prophet the message of the prophets yeah 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 absolutely now um just to change tack slightly you you've been uh, happily married to janet for over 50 years and and just hats off to you (laughs) um what advice would you give to those either getting married uh, who, or who are married uh, and maybe struggling a bit in, the, in their marriage uh, relationship? So, you know, you've done it, you've been there. Um, what, what words of wisdom might you give to such folks? Well, this is the point where I'm sorry my wife Janet isn't here to check my answers. <laughs> uh, we met as young teens, so we had the joy of a natural development of our you know relationship um oh i would say god obviously intended for me and janet on our own we were not good enough so we needed to become two to become one and i would say that i've learned through the years that to allow differences to become strengths sometimes differences become the cause of conflict so I, I'm a supreme optimist. Janet isn't a pessimist, but she is a realist. And, and so, I, I, you know, I, I, I always see the big picture. She sees the small details. And we, we, we make a great team. We could never work in the same office together, but it works together in the home. And it works for summer barbecues. <laughs> uh, I think the other thing is, because we've been a ministry marriage, I always say this to younger ministers, Get the order of priority right in the in the manse or the vicarage house. God is first, family second, self-care is third, and church and leadership responsibilities are fourth. And if you if you upset that order, if it's church first and then self-care second, and you know, whatever order you want to put it in, other than the order I've suggested. And when you do get the order wrong, which we do, we repent. And we put it right and because in a healthy marriage when it does go wrong it's not difficult to look back and say well that's why 
carve out time you know I, I used to when i used to have do you remember paper diaries before we had the electronic ones yes. um, and i used to sort of you know get my new diary for the year i would write out immediately before i put anything else in there i would write out each week family time and uh, so wednesday was my day off and i i used to take a a jewish sabbath if as it were you know when the sun went down on a friday around till perhaps lunchtime on a sunday that was family time so you always you know made sure um that was there and i think desert periods are normal the the chinese have a uh, have a phrase after the ecstasy do the laundry um well marriage isn't all about ecstasy you know there there are laundry things and other things to be done and um when when people say to me my husband never tells me he loves me um and he replies well you know i love you well how do you know i i, I just think we as we've got older we use words and actions you know i i do things because i know it pleases janet and i tell her i love her we both tell each other at the end of every day Mm. Oh, I love you. Mm. And I think the most serious thing, and I didn't know this when I was first married, but God has given both of us to be a visual aid in the home. It, it's there quite clearly in scripture. I'm meant to be a visual aid of Christ to his church. And Janet is meant to be a visual aid of the relationship of, 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 of Christ's people to Christ, the head of the church. And if we allow biblical imagery rather than cultural conformity to shape our relationship, however old fashioned it is, it's, it's a pretty ancient piece of teaching. And look at the history of, you know, solid, good Christian marriages. And when things do go wrong, seek help. Yeah. Don't be so high minded to think, well, we can sort this out when it gets to a point where you're not sorting it out. Never let the sun go down on your anger. And we've had a little habit. It's more difficult as we've got older. <laughs> when we're really needy, we choose to kneel. We, we don't kneel every time we pray together. But when the chips are down, when and we have had some serious moments, we just get down and we just say, Lord, this before you is how serious we need you right now. Mm, mm. And, uh, so I don't know whether that helps, but that's uh, very helpful. It's interesting. Uh, I, I'm going to do a shameless plug for the work that we're involved with now, because we've literally just finished a six week study on marriage. And just so brilliant to hear what you're saying there. Um, you know, looking at God's foundation for marriage between a man and a woman, uh, which I know is not a sort of necessarily a politically correct thing to say these days. Um, looking at the role of the husband in marriage, looking at the role of the wife in marriage. Um, looking at the whole subject of communication in marriage, um, some tremendous verses in the Bible about that. Um, also looking at the subject of love, looking at the four different types of love, you know, um, filio type of love, eros type of love, uh, agape type of love and storge type of love. And actually the, the eros, the sort of that sort of type of love is not mentioned in the Bible at all. And yet it's the agape type of love, the unconditional love of God and how he's demonstrated that through Christ. Just amazing. And and then lastly, we were looking at the whole um, subject of money, <coughs> finances in marriage. So um, 
I think for those of you that may be interested in this whole subject of marriage, um, then please, um, you know, check check out that it's called Building a Marriage That Really Works. Brilliant. And it's just what you're saying. It's what the Bible has to say about marriage. It's been around for years and, it, and, and it's a question of reading it and putting it into practice. <laughs> um, so I would just encourage you if you if you're interested, uh, and, you know, I know there are lots of books on marriage out there. But um, as I say, it's a bit of a shameless uh, plug for for that particular study, which we've just finished and found so helpful. And we will be putting it on our YouTube channel, Precept UK YouTube channel for people to watch at their own um, leisure. Um, now, I understand also that you love sport. I do. Why is that? Well, you might, <laughs> my dad was not interested in one iota in sport. And my brother and I are. So there, there's a mystery. I thankfully had some wonderfully sporty uncles, had some great sporty neighbours. We, we lived in Bournemouth when I was growing up. So Bournemouth became my first home club. And uh, I, can, I can remember you know, some wonderful matches down there. Um, I've played, I love sport. It, I suppose it's in my genes, the camaraderie of being part of a team um, and just going to, whether it be a cricket match, um, a football match, it's just great. It's a, it's a great buzz, you know, doing it together. And soccer is truly a global sport. It really is. I, when I was, you know, president traveling all around the place absolutely amazing to, to you could go into the most remote village in asia or africa and there you'd find all the premiership club shirts and i remember going to ghana taking part in a big festival there and uh, because i support chelsea chelsea's always had quite a lot of links you know with um uh, with ghana so many of their players came from there so I only had to sort of say, do any of you know, put the hand up. The whole place went berserk. <laughs> and, um, and it's a wonderful bridge builder. Um, I'm sometimes lost if I say to, to a guy, especially, you know, do you like football? He says, no. <laughs> um, and then you say, do you like poetry? No. <laughs> <laughs> so some of my loves, I, I run them out. But nine times out of ten people, um, you know, have a a thing to uh, to say about it so yeah. it's wonderfully relaxing yeah and um uh yeah i'm looking forward to seeing my club on television tonight so <laughs> good. yeah there's nothing there's nothing like watching well i was gonna say nothing like watching england in the world cup football but it, it it's so sort of up and down isn't it but uh you you have high expectations for your national team um and for a cricket match i think to to go you know second day of the test match at lords um and to sit with, you know, a couple of mates and the amount of stuff you get through looking. It is possible, as you know, to look at a match and also multitask by having good fellowship and uh, the journey there and the journey back. Great stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now, we, we've talked about the word of God a little bit. Um, I, I want to. Um, why is the word of God important to you? Um, and what are some good ways to mentor leaders? and disciple new believers? I think I've already said I, I, the word of God's important to me because through his word, he speaks to me. And I think I'm involved a fair bit in Alpha and evangelism courses. And it's always mind blowing to people, you know, when they say, why doesn't God speak to me? Well, he does. Yeah. I'll give you an up-to-date example. This happened a week ago. Yeah. We've got lovely neighbors either side of where we live here. 
and uh, they during the first lockdown they were particularly kind to us um, and one family uh, would they would just ring the doorbell we'd open it there was a loaf of bread and a you know uh, some eggs and um, he supports wolves and I support Chelsea so we've had lots of chats about footy um, out of the blue last Wednesday a week ago he sent me a text. We set up a little WhatsApp group for the three families. And he sent me a text which said, uh, would you pray for my dad? He's seriously unwell in hospital. They don't even know whether he's going to see through the next 24 hours. Um, so I'm gonna, I've am going. i got the Bible here. I'm going to see if I can find the, the actual verse. That was on the Wednesday night. On the Thursday morning, we were reading Psalm 41. And verse 3 says, the Lord will sustain him on his sickbed and restore him from his bed of illness. Now, when we read that, we just immediately thought of my neighbor's father. Mm-hmm. And uh, so later that day, they went into the hospital. And in that 24 hours, there had been a turn of events. And from their deep concern, the hospital said he's responded to treatment. So I knew that my neighbours, because he told me, I knew that my neighbour's mother was a Christian. Oh, incidentally, I should have said, when my neighbour texted me and said, would you pray for my dad? Uh, I'm not allowed to go in the hospital. It's restricted. So I couldn't go and pray for him. So I phoned my neighbour and I prayed with him. I said, Ollie, would you mind if, you know, I said a prayer down the phone? He says, no, go ahead. And then he told me that his mum and dad went to church locally and uh, I said text me your mum's email uh, phone number and I'll phone her so I phoned this lady on the Friday morning and uh, I I didn't tell this to Ollie but I told his mum how we'd read Psalm 41 verse 3 she was absolutely delighted why because God had spoken to all of us as it were Mm -hmm. about Elliot the man who was unwell through his word Now, you can say on another time, I'll read that and it would pass me by. But God lifted. It was in neon lights. This word is for Ollie's dad. She then went on to share with me uh, that uh, Ollie, in fact, in his past has made a commitment. And um, so, you know, he's still my friend, but I know a little bit more about my friend than I previously did. So the power of the word to change people. Now, you asked me about good ways to mentor leaders and disciple new believers i'm a great believer in micro groups okay i'm in a micro group at the moment uh four guys we call it g4 and uh g4 is made up of two people who've only very recently become christians and two guys who are me and another guy mm-hmm. and we meet we share about life family we share always the bible uh prayer we have a WhatsApp, uh, we hang out together, we have meals. Uh, once in a while, when it's not locked down, the wives join us. And uh, one of them was baptized two or three weeks ago. And in his testimony, he said, G4, that microgroup has been a key thing. I'll give you an example. Uh, our pastor gave a sermon on money, on giving. So when we had one of our G4 groups, Uh, One of these guys just said, uh, we had that sermon on money, but he didn't tell us how much to give. How much should I give? 
And he said, you know, am I meant to give a fiver? 15,000, 25,000, what, what's the amount? And so it, it's just wonderful. I find I grow both in faith uh, and in inspiration in what God is doing to hear these young Christians yeah. uh, do these things. So I think it's a great way to disciple new believers, to get them into, you know, micro groups. And in terms of mentoring other leaders, I do a lot of that. I prefer to do one-on-one. Okay. I prefer that they keep a journal and uh, they particularly write down when things don't go well and then we discuss why didn't they go well and uh, again i get a lot of joy out of you know mentoring young pastors so there we go that's wonderful yeah that is wonderful. you mentioned money there uh, i may have mentioned this before in previous podcasts but it, it, it always brings a, a smile to my face a great friend of mine is a pastor michael healy up in scotland talks about three conversions uh the conversion of the heart the conversion of the wallet <laughs> and the conversion of the right pedal when you're driving <laughs> oh very good very so, but no i think i think that one-on-one discipleship is is such a, a um an important thing you said there because we can think oh you know i need to be discipling all these people but actually the one person that you disciple may end up being that Billy Graham or that pastor or whatever. And you can, you can invest in that, that one person so much more. Can um, I just add something to that? And that is, I've learned that you've got to wean them off you. You may have been the midwife yeah. that brought them to Christ, but you have to wean them off you and onto God, much as you would with a child. Yeah. And we, we had a, Janet and I hosted, during the summer in the garden, a discipleship group that we had had two or three years ago. And what was absolutely great was to just see how they're walking, running, you know, the equivalent of going to school and their reading and writing in Christian terms. Yeah. And we need to remind ourselves, Nigel, we're under shepherds. Yeah. And if a discipler gets into the position where they think they are the good shepherd mm. and, and they get some sort of, yeah. You know, a wrong motive, you know, yeah. that they, they need people around them. We're meant to make young disciples independent of us mm. uh, and do that as soon as you can. You'll know the time. Yeah. Amen. Amen. And, and another little bit of a, a plug. Um, we, we meet with a, a, whole, a, a bunch of leaders, um, precept leaders, actually. We're going through a study on influence. It's called Influence, a study on mentoring at the moment. And just what you're saying there came out last week, actually, uh, looking at the relationship between Moses uh, and Joshua and um, Samuel and Saul and David and Saul, um, looking at the relationship between them and mentoring lessons. So I think, yeah, it's, it's, we're a conduit, aren't we? It's... it's um, to point them to the one who who is um, who is the one that they can trust. You know, we we are fallible human beings. We we can be a, a sort of a guide along the way, uh, and how mentoring relationships can be short term, long term, you know, etc. So that's wonderful. Now, um, I want to ask you about uh, top tips for budding preachers, and how you prepare to preach yourself. I think your heart needs to be spiritually warm. And uh, personally, I find the way to do that is I, I use music, um, all sorts of music. And I think learning to read the Bible for food and not for sermons. Uh, I have an upstairs Bible. I brought it with me 
that's the one I have by my bedside. And I have a downstairs Bible, which is my study Bible. <laughs> um, and I, I think it, it just is a way for me saying that I, I need to feed myself yeah. as a pastor and not just read the Bible for sermons. Mm-hmm. I think the second thing is to, you need to be physically fit. There have been times when I thought, well, I need to get in the study, but I'm so weary and tired. I'm there because the discipline says I should be there, but I'm no good to anybody. So get out, take a walk, you know, go and have a lie down, watch a film. Uh, you know, you need to be spiritually warm and physically fit. I think the second thing is that 2 Timothy 2 reminds us that ministry is hard work. And you know this, that the, the images of soldier, mm-hmm. athlete, and the hardworking farmer. Yep. Sermon preparation is costly and demanding. You know, why did Paul bother to use those imageries? They're wonderful images. And if you dig deep into the 2 Timothy 2, soldier, athlete, hardworking farmer, and apply that to sermon preparation, there are aspects of sermon preparation, what I call the foothills, which are very enjoyable. But when the hard work begins of building the bridge between the word as it was originally given and the word that is for today, that's when sweat and tears come. And I think the third thing is pray to the Holy Spirit before, during and after. You know, these are your people, Lord. They need feeding. What is it you want to say? What did you say in that passage from Joshua? What is the bridge you're wanting to build to this people for this moment? Mm -hmm. And remember, the Holy Spirit goes on speaking after Mm -hmm. the sermon is over. I think too often we just sort of you know, close the Bible, come down from the pulpit, leave the church and think that's it. It's not it. It's only just begun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, now, I understand you discovered a preacher's verse in the Bible. What, I have. What, what, what would that be? And, and how does it help you? <laughs> well, I'm showing it to you now, uh, because this is an audio. Uh, yes. People can't see it, but it's, it's Isaiah 50, verse 14. And I yeah. keep it inside my Bible. I'll read it to you. The sovereign Lord has given me an instructive tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. Now, I didn't get this at the beginning of my ministry, but in, in these latter years, I realized that the Lord couldn't get through to me all he wanted to say during my busy hours. And so I'd suddenly find myself waking about five o'clock in the morning and I heard his voice as clear as a bell. And it was only later that I discovered this verse. (laughs) That's what he's been doing. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. Why does he want to do this? Because of what the first part of that verse says. Isaiah 50 verse four, he's given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. Mm. That's the task of the preacher. Yeah. It's not a lecture. Yeah. It is a living word of God yeah, to yeah. sustain those who are weary or have lost their way. Yeah. yeah, wonderful. Do you have a favorite Bible book or character at all? I think we've, Janet and I together, we, we've just come to love the Psalms. We read a psalm every day and when we get to the end, we go back and start all over again. Jesus soaked himself. There's a huge amount 
of uh, literature. And when you go back to the, the fathers, Augustine and Luther and many others, the, 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 the Christocentric, if I can put it that way, Jesus soaked himself in the sound and it showed in his life and in his teaching. So if this was the prayer book of Jesus, if this was his hymn book, then I need to soak myself in it. So I do love the Psalms and I love all the Gospels, but I, I suppose have developed a particular love for the uh, the two volume Luke Acts. And I, I just love the the way in which those two volumes belong together. Mm -hmm. And if you put them together, they're a fair part of the New Testament. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, yeah. So those would be my, uh, and characters, it depends the season I'm in. Probably <laughs> all the Bible characters at some point in my <laughs> life. Absolutely. What about a verse? Now that, now that is a tough question. You, you, you're allowed one verse to take with you. What would that verse be? Oh, is that, is that the only one? I'm looking for my little, uh, here it is. On my baptismal evening, the 3rd of May, 1959, I've got it here. My mum and dad gave me a little book of Bible readings and inside uh, it was uh, Proverbs 3, yep. verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Yep. That emphasis on you do have to have understanding, but don't lean on it. Hmm. So the understanding that comes from where are we and what are my gifts, etc., etc. I would never qualify to be a pilot because I've got poor eyesight. So I don't, I don't need to ask the Lord's will on that. Uh, but there are other occasions when <clears throat> it could be either or, and it's important not to lean on your own understanding mm. and mm. him direct your paths. Mm. Wonderful. Now um, we're coming into land. You talked about being a flying helicopter. Sir. Um, what is next for you, sir? Um, I, I know in our previous sort of conversations, you, you sort of mentioned that you're, approaching octogenarian status next year i next month in yeah. november uh, 2020 i'll be 79 so 2021 i'll be 80 you'll be 80 now moses was 80 when when you know god had his greatest work for him leading you know um daniel was an older guy when he went into the lion's den so i mean your ministry is just starting david <laughs> well i'd rather be moses and daniel at this point <laughs> um, I, I have to say to you, Nigel, honestly, I, we've come back to live in Devon and I've come back to be part of the church where I was the pastor in the 1980s. And Janet and I would both say we've never felt so contented in the life of a local church. Because remember, for, for many years, 23 years, I was a tramp preacher nationally, internationally. And I just longed to be part of, of a local church and i am now i'm part of the alpha team we co-host a small group i mentor and we both feel the favor of god on our lives in the local church and if 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 god you know keeps me here and calls me to go home from this particular local church and this particular group of people i am deeply contented in whatever state you are be contented the word says that, doesn't it? It does. It and, I've learned, and it's a learning process. Paul says, I've yes, learned. He does. In state I am, he to does. be content. He does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then he goes on to talk about all different circumstances, you know, whether yeah. rich or poor, you know. Absolutely. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, I want to um, 
thank you for sharing um, something of your journey of faith uh, with me this morning and with those who have been listening. Uh, I think I think for me, um, what I'm going to take away from this really is that uh, Jesus is our mentor. Uh, I think for me, just listening to you say that, um, he is the one that we are to pursue and follow and take our lead from. And I sometimes say to people who don't, who are not Christians, who, who um, maybe, you know, had an opportunity to talk about the faith. I said, uh, I, go, and, go and just read about Jesus and, and come back and tell me if you've got any issues with him. You know, just... Just tell me what what problems you may have with Jesus, because because I don't think you're going to find any. <laughs> I said you, you may have problems with some Christians, <laughs> but you but I don't think you're going to find a problem with Jesus. So go and, go and check him out, you know. Um, and uh, so re- being reminded of that, I think is is great. So thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I, I'm very very grateful to you. Uh, I'm sure the Lord has got lots more for you to do. Um, uh, down there in Devon and a wider field as well and I'm sure you know as you mentor people your your ministry through them you, you know you've got many I'm sure spiritual sons and grandchildren uh, but you'll have many more um, in the years to come so so thank you so much. Nigel thank you it's been a privilege.